0: Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen, and on today's episode, we dive into the world of family office investing with Ron Sean from Red's Capital. Ron shares his early life growing up in Japan and watching his father travel to Canada to develop his real estate empire known as the Sean Group, a family legacy since 1954, into one of Vancouver's largest landlords. We get Ron to share the insights on how education from Stanford and Wharton shaped his vision for building a global business in North America, and how the sudden passing of his father a week after graduating Stanford forced Ron into taking over the family empire. Next, Ron explains how he was able to shift from real estate to technology and VC investments after luckily investing in Apple stock on a whim while realizing the cap potential of real estate investing when going up against pension funds and institutional investors. Lastly, Ron discusses how Red's Capital assesses potential startup investments and shares how they provide not just capital, but also strategic advice and network support to foster innovation and growth in their portfolio companies. But before we jump into this week's interview with Ron Sean, we welcome back to the tank, John Ruffalo, to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Welcome back to the show, John. You know, I want to get your thoughts on something that I listened to this week. I'm not sure if you caught the Acquired podcast with legendary investor Charlie Munger, who is almost 100 years old, who gave his honest opinions on many topics, but one of them was on venture capitalists. And as he quotes, to hell with them. You don't want to make money by screwing your investors. And that's what a lot of venture capitalists do. Quote, you really shouldn't be in the business of charging extra unless you're really going to achieve unusual results. So he took a swipe at a couple personalities in the business as well, you know. And obviously, he he did compliment some people in the industry, saying how you know Sequoia Capital is one of the greatest venture funds, American investment firms of all time. I just wondered your thoughts on this. You know, what would you say to Charlie Munger about the VC industry if you were having dinner with him? Is he right? Does he have a point?
1: I would say that first of all, I'm a huge fan of, of Charlie Munger and. If for those of you who have followed him, he does have a way with words, and he does go to the extremes on purpose in order to make his point. But I think his point is a valid point. To me, what the real point and by the way, many entrepreneurs will have heard this from me when I say, "Hey, you are a very good business, but you are not a venture-fundable business." And what I really meant by that is not a disservice, but rather, what are you doing? It is the most expensive form of financing. And there's so many other things that you should consider, perhaps, before getting to venture capital financing. And the value of it is that if there is a, a time clock, you, you would need that capital in order to produce an advantage. So be it. But I think that the the comment that I would say to a lot of entrepreneurs is, is think about all of the ways on how to build your business. And the best way is to build it off the back of your customers who have a vested interest in your survival and using that cash flow. So he is right. And the last thing I would just simply say is, and I, I do joke about this a little bit, but When venture capitalists, too, come out and go, you know, we have value-add, what do you really mean by that? And when you really see that, and I will readily admit, there is a perverse, inverse relationship between the amount of time that I have spent with the most successful outcomes, Of the of my portfolio. (laughs) What does that really say? And I would say that if you stratify your portfolios, the A's, B's and C's, a good venture capitalist could impact a B and save them perhaps from going down or getting a little bit of an extra return. But no VC is saving a C in their portfolio and they're not really adding much to the A.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. I'd say the work we spend on you know the bottom 50% to make sure that they are su- successful enough so that it creates you know a capital return is way more than the ones that are top 10% in the portfolio or, or top A's for sure. But I think what Charlie was really pointing fingers at was sort of the egregious fees that some funds are charging the three percent plus 30% carry.
1: He was pointing to one firm in particular on that one, yes.
0: Yeah, and speaking of that firm, Mr. Horowitz and Mr. Andreessen, they just came out saying that they are targeting a $3.4 billion next core early stage fund and seed stage fund. I'm shocked as well, which is a slight increase from their prior funds, which is crazy in this market. But one interesting part that I picked up on that I'd like your thoughts on is they're not requiring, but they are asking limited partners to invest via a new master vehicle, that would feed into sub funds including some of their sector specific funds like the gaming fund there is another fund that did this it was sequoia as well but theirs was not voluntary so what are your thoughts on this this is
1: not really for the benefit of the lps this is for the benefit of the the general partner or, or the fund I guess if they could get away with it, good for them. You know, Sequoia executed this and it was a complete disaster where you're right. They they were not allowing you to make the choices. Here is the problem. There is the generalist funds and then there's the highly specialized. These are two great firms, outstanding firms that started from the specialized and now are kind of moving more into this generalist fund. Large capital pools, what they do is they like to say, I want to invest, like, let me do the diversification. You are the best at this. If I wanted the best gaming, it's not going to be your fun. Or if I want the best crypto, it's not necessarily going to be your fun. And I would rather do the diversification. So you're not really saving me anything when I put it into a master and then you're doing the asset allocation. That's my job as a capital allocator is what I would say. But firms like a Sequoia and Reason could get away with it, I guess, because so many people are lining up, you know, to 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 be their investors. But I actually don't think it's ultimately good for the industry.
0: Yeah, it's it's they become a fund to fund for themselves. And so I think the LPs are kind of passing over the workload to them and making, it does make their jobs a lot easier for sure, because they can just go to their trustees and say, look, we're diversified, but we only had to kind of due diligence one firm and they took over the risk and and delegated the funds accordingly. But I don't think that's the right way. Maybe LP should be thinking about a long term. So we'll see if they end up hitting that target. It would be the only firm that increased, I think, as of late.
1: There, I was an investor in them when I was at Omer's. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of theirs. You know, the only comment I have, and again, it's, it's a little bit unjustified, but do they have a little bit of shiny new object syndrome at Endreson? And when I say that, you know, they had the crypto fund, they had the, the gaming fund, et cetera. By having a master fund, does it actually accelerate the shiny new object syndrome so that they can be very quick and flexible to move monies wherever they think is the, is the hottest area. But there's no, there's not a natural tension from LPs to say, wait a minute, that's a real shiny new object. Stop chasing that. And we don't like for you to chase that. So I do wonder Is it, is it because Andreessen, you know, might be better in their asset allocation or or is it the capital pool? And maybe they're, they're really, you're right. They're really outsourcing the capital allocation decision away from uh, the capital pools.
0: Yeah. I think that it's a bit of herd mentality from the LP side, just saying, you know, I'm not going to lose my job by investing in Andreessen versus taking the risk on somebody else on a very special general or non-generalist specialized fund. You know, talking about, you know, red shiny objects or so, you know, there's obviously a lot of money still going into new AI platforms, but there's also a lot of money being burned in a lot of companies as of late with all of AI, the healthcare automation company that was once valued at 4 billion had sold itself off into pieces, you know, to waste our energy health. And so that company had raised nearly 900 million from Vista Equity, Dragonier General Catalyst, Sequoia, you know, some of the best in the business and once valued at 4 billion I guess the question is, a lot of people were trying to do these rescue rounds in Q4, which we're halfway through now, and it doesn't seem like it's working out like the convoy we spoke about the other week. I feel like Q1 is going to be a really bad quarter for these growth equity companies that could not do rescue financing. I've heard from some people that not only are they not getting rescue financing, but some of these companies that were sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars of invested capital were basically depleted on that but also sitting with 50 to 100 million of mes debt at the high teens rates paying a million dollars a month alone in interest. So how bad is Q1 going to really, really be?
1: I thought we were going to get through this side and uh, Q4 was going to be a fantastic time to to do some of the transactions. I will tell you from our perspective, we've been looking at a lot of those when you look at the underlying businesses, there was two problems that we were seeing. Oh, actually, maybe three problems. We we couldn't get excited on the future business. It was an overhyped business, and the market is just not in their favor. That was number one. Number two, on the unit economics, it was going to take so much money to fix it, and you're going through a riff. And all the severances you required and we start running the math and go, Jesus, it's not leaving very much uh, to go to the business in order to enable the business to to get the right unit economics. And the third, and this is the most troubling part, and I'm still frustrated. People are still worried about dilution and they have broken cap tables At valuations that were so egregious and they somehow think that, you know, maybe with the business turning around, we've been predicting a technical recession in Canada. We think we're in it now, perhaps mildly. It's only going to get worse. But that's the, that last example is the one that frustrates me in that dudes, you don't go bankrupt. Uh, by having cash on your balance sheet, don't worry about the dilution. You did something, you know, you could fix it, at least if you're the employees. If, if it's the investors, hey, investors, tough luck. That was the game that you're in and you're going to get crammed out. But that's the game that we're in. So I, I say in Canada, that has been a, a particularly acute issue that I still find surprising.
0: It is surprising. You know, when we look at dilution, we we forecast aggressive dilution on a worst case scenario across all of our investments. When we model them out to an exit enterprise value, minimum 50% all the way up to 75% on the dilution side, which you should do as an early stage investor. So you should be backfilling your entry price and your starting ownership to know if you have to take on, let's say 75% dilution by the end of it, the value enterprise exit value is still worth a lot to your fund overall. And I don't think a lot of people do that. A lot of people also, they only look at the dilution on the pref side. They don't take into ESOP and the common shares and all the other grants and other things like that out there that really trickle down when a hundred percent of the business is transferred to the acquiring.
1: You know, the only other question I would have too, and again, this is more a question mark. Are they mismanaging their reserves as well?
0: Uh, For sure. So for sure.
1: So that's a big issue, right? So for, for those of you who don't understand, the issue is that the earlier you go, you, you typically try to figure out how much capital over the course of time, and it's, and it's a bit of an art, is going to be required. And what you really want to do is you want to be able to double down all the way through, and it enables you to calculate how much money is reserved for that particular portfolio company. And the earlier you go, the, the multiple the reserve is a multiple of your first investment. And then as time goes on, you start adjusting it through, and, it, and it's and it's a it's a tough exercise, but that's part of portfolio management. What I find happens in a number of these cases, the, the shit hits the fan, cap table is broken, and a lot of the insiders, and this is to your question, say. I'm tapped out, no new capitals coming in, where are you in helping, you know, your own portfolio company? And did you mismanage your own reserves? And, and, and now that portfolio company goes away. So that would, that'd would be a question for me to really unpack.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Another question I have is how do you think reserves are being played when you see deals like Google committing 2 billion to Anthropic, you know, rival open AI, you know, Were the early stage investors willing to buy their pro rata uh, on that valuation? I doubt it. (laughs) You know where you got that, and then you got Mistral, founded by former Meta uh, platform and Alphabet researchers, looking to raise three hundred million. Now we know these large, multi hundred or you know double digit billion dollar rounds are not pure primary rounds, right? I think a lot of them has to do with purchasing of nvidia devices chipsets and things like that there's a lot of like hard costs that are going into these financing rounds but it is interesting like the amount of money that lightspeed and uh, google and nvidia and amazon are throwing into these large language model companies well why why would you even be an investor in these rounds as a, an early or as a growth investor like, i just don't understand the point because then they they're going to gobble up the, the business if it fails because they're the largest shareholder and they probably get rights to own the assets. And if it works out, how much more are they really going to be buying their minority investors out for? I just don't see it.
1: Say, say, it's on a Google. Even if Anthropic doesn't have the exit, which the, you know math would suggest, it's going to have to be twenty billion dollars, or actually, right. what the pre-money value? It was twenty billion, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, Google committed okay. two billion to 200 Anthropic
1: and two hundred billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> two hundred. Uh, yes yeah, sorry yeah so it's 200 billion dollar exit in venture land is what the expectation of that would be. However, Google's uh, you know is using this for marketing, learning, getting chipsets, maybe bringing those employees back and there's so much other strategic value drivers I still think that's pretty pricey that a purely financial investor can't do so I agree with you. Uh, on a number of those, I, I think it makes it very tough. And if you're in Canada, where we have much smaller pools, it really takes out uh, any Canadian involvement.
0: Yeah, I was speaking with an, a VC, a very well-known VC the other day, and they said they did a study on how if any generational companies were created during previous hype cycles by looking at the investments made by that. And the answer is no. And they basically said when OpenAI was first invested and created, the hype cycle of the day was like Casper and like CPG companies, Warby Parker. Those were the hype investments at the time these companies were created. So if if OpenAI or you know Anthropic is now the hype investment that's being invested in, that's not when they were started. That's when the hype money goes in. It's unlikely based on what we've seen in times past that they all automatically become a generational company.
1: Interesting. So I should go out and uh, invest in some shoes and eyewear? Is that what you're telling me now?
0: Yeah, essentially, what I'm telling you is for us as early stage investors, we need to be three to four years ahead of any potential hype cycle. It's already too late for these investors, in my opinion. That's why when, when we invested in VoiceFlow at the 2018 time period, no, but there was no category for conversational design. There was no real chatbot, you know, AI software. That became the market eventually. Now, luck and good timing, sure. But I think that's the lesson that we're thinking about now from our perspective. If something is already hype with all these AI wrapper companies, it's unlikely it's going to become a generational company, is my point.
1: Yeah. When the Uber driver is explaining to you about Gen AI, maybe, uh, unless that Uber driver happens to be working for Google, uh, which you never know. You're absolutely right. It's it's likely too late.
0: You're still seeing, it's funny, in our pitch decks, we see a lot of them. We're still seeing the Uber for X still popping up. Yeah. Decades later, which is crazy. I still say
1: the Shopify for X all over the place, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, John. Until next time. Thanks again. All
1: right. See you, Matt.
0: Now, let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Ron Sean from Reds Capital. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Ron.
2: My pleasure, Matt. Nice to be here.
0: Ron, your journey into the real estate and investment world is one filled with legacy and community And it's not often we have someone with such wealth of experience joining us in the tank to share your story with our audience. So maybe to kick things off, it would be great if you can give our audience a brief background on where you grew up, your upbringing as a child, and how you eventually took over the family real estate business and where it stands today.
2: I was born in Okinawa, Japan, my parents having moved there right after the Second World War. And I spent the first uh, 13 years of my life in Okinawa. I went to school in the United States. I went to prep school in Connecticut. Then I uh, went to the uh, West Coast and attended uh, university at Stanford. And and then after that, I went to uh, Wharton for an MBA. My parents at that time were still living uh, in Okinawa. And what they were doing, uh, what what my dad was doing, was um, running a retail business. Uh, But at the same time, what he did was he traveled to Canada on a number of different occasions, and started buying real estate, um, starting in Saskatoon of all places, and then um, uh, moved to Vancouver. Eventually, he ended up with a you know a nice little portfolio in Western Canada, and he decided to move to Vancouver um, in 1977, which is the year I graduated uh, from uh, uh, MBA school. Tragically, what happened was. I graduated on a Sunday. He passed away the next Friday. So it was, it was you know, it was, it was very sudden, very unexpected. So as a firstborn son, uh, it was my, the expectation that I would uh, jump in and uh, run the family uh, business. And so at that time, um, our activities were largely focused on real estate. And, um, a little bit of, uh, side investments, like, you know, we had a, we had a, we had a stock portfolio, an investment portfolio, but nothing really serious. So for many years, uh, what we did was just concentrate on developing and building our real estate portfolio. And so over the years, um, we've built and been involved in a number of, uh, buildings, uh, in downtown Vancouver, up and down the West coast of the United States, uh, in all three western provinces uh, in in Canada, and we were uh, also involved in uh, in uh, Toronto real estate for a little bi- a little bit as well, we were uh, involved in in the United States and in, in Dallas, Texas for a while no longer I guess about uh, seven or eight years ago now, we decided to um, make a uh, what I would call a strategic decision to look at other avenues, other investment opportunities that I thought might be um, more appropriate for where we were as a
0: family office. Oh, wow. An incredible history. I mean, your father, Charles Sean, started the Sean Group in 1954, but as you say, he didn't get to Vancouver until 1977. So was he acquiring all these assets with just like flights over from Okinawa, Japan to Canada? you know, and then going back to Japan and letting somebody else like operate them?
2: Yes, that's, that's quite right. Yeah. So we had a, we had a, a, an operator here who looked after uh, the properties uh, while he was gone. We were lucky because uh, the manager was, was quite good. you know, you know my father trusted him uh, and, and, and he did a very, very good job for us.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So he starts the Shawn Group in 1954, as you mentioned, in 1977. As you graduate your MBA from Wharton, your father passes away essentially a week later. I got asked, did your father share any kind of words of wisdom with you throughout your time as a young adult before handing over the reins, unfortunately, at the time of his passing?
2: I spent a lot of time with my dad uh, over the years. Um, I feel very, very, uh, very fortunate to have done so. And one thing that he, he kept telling me over the years was it's really not how much money you have, it's how well you plan. Money uh, you can make, you can lose. But if you have a good plan and you stick to, to the plan, chances are you will be successful. You know, the, the, there's always going to be people who are smarter than you, who have more money than you. Uh, if, you if you plan, uh, you can generally outthink them. You know those words of wisdom, those pearls of wisdom, have um, stuck with me throughout the years. I haven't always um, abided by them, um, but um, you know, every so often I go back and I and I, I remember what he told me and uh, get my get myself back on the rails, so to speak. You know.
0: Yeah, get yourself back on track. I mean, you had a good track to start with. You know, you received your BA from Stanford University, as you mentioned, on the West Coast. And then you went to get your MBA at Wharton on the East Coast. You know, how did those years learning from some of the world's most prestigious institutions impact your views on building a global business out of Vancouver, Canada?
2: Coming from Okinawa, which, which is a, a very small place, I was very sheltered. I, I hadn't really been exposed to too much. When I went to uh, the school in the United States, it was like uh, the country boy coming to the city. You know what I mean? And my eyes were opened. As I got more and more, I, I spent more and more time in the United States, my my eyes were becoming more and more open. And and, and even today, you know, I live in Vancouver, which is a relatively small city on, on a global basis. So every time I go to New York or I go to Beijing or Shanghai, you know, I'm just amazed at, at, at the scale of, uh, of the buildings and the scale of the city. I, I come back home and I, and I feel like, you know, people in Vancouver, especially in, in, say, in Western Canada, just don't have a sense of scale. You know, what I learned when I was going to school uh, in the United States was that it's a big world and there's a lot of smart people out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I kind of grew up, you know, in Toronto. I went to school in the East Coast of Canada. But when I moved down to New York City, again, my eyes were open. Living there for a few years, working on Wall Street, it totally changed the way I thought about relationships, business, networking, the way you know commerce was really done. It, it really does have a significant impact on you. So I can totally understand that. But speaking of scale, you know, the Sean Group has owned and managed over four million square feet of real estate. And has developed some of the most iconic properties around the world. So, maybe you can explain to our audience the approach you've been taking to structuring these types of deals for success, and maybe some highlights and stories about the deals you've done that have had a lasting impact on your career. Yes, Matt. We've been involved in um,
2: in downtown, you know, Vancouver downtown real estate for a number of years. We put together the HSBC building on Georgia Street. Uh, for those of you who know Vancouver, that building is located right across the street from the Hotel Vancouver, and then uh, we also uh, developed the building across the street from that, which is a, a building called Cathedral Place, which is um, at the corner corner of uh, Georgia and Hornby. And so, you know, I would say that those two buildings are, uh, you know, iconic. What I learned in that process, you know, while I was going through this this whole uh, you know development process. Commercial development, especially office development, is a business that requires big dollars and a long-term viewpoint. And um, it was my experiences working on those two buildings that was the catalyst for me to start looking at other areas to invest in, you know, to try and grow the family business.
0: I mean, there must have been some pretty memorable experiences or challenges, though, with those two projects with Cathedral Place and HSBC. Any ones you can share?
2: The site of the Cathedral Place was, an old Georgia Medi- was the old Georgia Medical Building, which um, had a lot of historical significance. It was built in 1926. So when I announced that um, I wanted to redevelop the site, we had a lot of sort of public dissension. And you know uh, there were there were uh, th- there, there were a number of articles in the paper about wanting to keep that building as a heritage building uh, to preserve it. I had uh, quite a fight with uh, uh, you know with City Hall and 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 you know the other. Uh, uh, people who wanted to keep the building. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we had some trying times, but it, at the end of the day, um, I, I achieved what I wanted to do, which was to um, blow up the buil- blow up the building, which I did actually. I I, I actually got a, a company in and um, it had the building imploded. So that was quite a, that was quite a, a lot of fun. Actually, it, it happened on a Sunday morning. At uh, uh, six o'clock uh, a.m. is kind of a tourist spectacle that day. I mean, it was it was. Did it was you get really to push the, the button? Uh, no, I, I did not. I did not. Unfortunately, <laughs> I wish I, I I wish I could have. But no, they wouldn't. Yeah, allow I'm me sure. To do that. Yeah. Liab- yeah, yeah. Liability okay. reasons that I was told.
0: You can cut the uh, red ribbon tape to open it, but you're not allowed to, it,
2: it, to destroy it. it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you know, your family obviously has expanded as you mentioned beyond real estate with investments in technology and venture capital. You know, what initially led you to start investing in these areas, and how has your experience as an entrepreneur influenced your approach to investing in areas like venture capital?
2: You know, as you know, uh, you know, we spent many years um, developing and owning commercial real estate, office buildings, shopping centers, and, and that type of thing. But it became very, very obvious those kinds of buildings that we were getting involved in required a long-term view and required a lot of capital to play in that business, Um, basically institutional. And so if you take a look at the landscape in North America, and actually probably around the world, okay, the large office buildings, the large commercial buildings are generally institutionally owned. Individuals like me, just don't own them because we can't afford them. I found that increasingly my competition um, was people or firms like OMERS, Ontario Teachers, AIMCO, I mean, big, big institutional investors who have a unlimited amount of capital and a very, very long time horizon. So as an individual, I could not compete. And, and so I decided that um, in order for me to continue to achieve the above market returns that I had been used to, it would be better for me to look at other areas. Just coincidentally, um, at about that time, um, one of my investment advisors convinced me to include a few shares of uh, apple and microsoft in in the stock portfolio and at that time i you know i i knew who they were but i didn't really know much about what that what they did um and so i said okay fine 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 i just said yeah just do it just do it and and show me okay well guess what okay those companies started performing much better than everything else i had and so i decided that oh okay i better look at this uh, uh, seriously and I came to the conclusion that the reason why those companies pr- were performing much better than the other ones that I had was because they were, and still are, producing goods and services that are globally scalable. Like, like for example, everybody wants a smartphone. If, if I were to build a, another building on Georgia Street, who cares, right? I mean, no, nobody cares, okay? But if apple comes out with apple you know the iphone iphone 15 well the whole world knows about it what they were doing is producing products and services that were impacting the lives of people all over the world and, and that's why these companies are so valuable you know so what i did was i took a real hard look at the technology center uh, uh sector and um decided um that it, If I was to achieve the above market returns that our family had been used to, it would behoove me to spend some serious time, you know, investing in that sector. And I did. And so we put together a group of people. We have an organization, we have a venture capital firm called um, Reds Capital. We've invested in a number of uh, startups around the world. And so that was uh, seven years ago now. I've learned a lot in seven years.
0: No, oh, I'm sure. I mean, I think the fact that you realized that one, you were getting outcompeted by people with basically endless pools of capital, lower cost of capital, and infinite time horizons was just not a place that you wanted to be competing as an individual investor in the real estate space. So they could obviously outbid you and undercut you. But also, you realized that there were limits to how big of a market you could actually uh, acquire you know, in the real estate space, which is quite intelligent. It's kind of like how you came from Okanaga and then you made your way to the big cities of the U S your eyes were open to the global potential of these technology businesses that basically had borderless, you know, customer bases that they can sell into good on you for obviously recognizing that for someone who spent basically a hundred percent of your life in the real estate world. So with reds capital that was started seven years ago, maybe explain to our audience, you know, how that group was formed, the capital that you guys are deploying uh, and the primary industries or sectors that you are focusing on for investments?
2: As I indicated, uh, we, uh, we put together this group of, pe- of people about six or seven years ago now. Initially, um, what we did was we started investing um, on an indi- individual basis in, in certain startups. Okay? But then we, we decided that um, we would formalize it by creating our first uh, fund. So we 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 did that. We have investments in fourteen companies around the world. These companies are early stage companies. They are companies that um, all have the potential to become unicorns in a number of different areas. But the, the the most common area, the most common theme amongst all of them, is artificial intelligence. So we looked at um, the AI sector and and decided that. Of all the emerging technologies that are out there, AI was probably the one that would impact um, the world the most um, in the foreseeable future. So, fast forward to 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 today, you know, given what's happened um, with uh, ChatGPT and and you know a number of the generative AI uh, um, companies that are out there, you know, our prediction has been right. We also have um, an investment in. Uh, a company called uh, Analog Computation Enterprises, which is, uh, which is developing a new type of uh, chip, which is an analog chip. It's, it's a non-silicon analog chip, which um, uh, has the potential to change the, the, the nature of, of computation as we know it. And it'll be out in the market uh, in probably six to nine months.
0: Wow, that's incredible. And so as a general partner of Red's Capital, you know, how does the group assess these opportunities, you know, and and can you explain more about this open innovation venture capital model that you have working at Red's? The premise
2: be- behind open innovation is that small companies generally innovate much better than large companies. You know, there are a number uh, of startups around the world doing very interesting things, okay? Most of the interesting things that are being done today are done by small companies, you know, very, very few large companies like Microsoft or Apple or NVIDIA come up with, you know, really, really groundbreaking new stuff. Most of this stuff is is done by, you know, small entrepreneurs who have ideas and you know they have the freedom to to do what they want. So that's what that's what we call open innovation. We look for companies, uh, startups who have these bright ideas, new products, new services, whatever it may be. we We help them grow with the idea that they will be interesting as acquisition targets for larger companies. So that's what the open innovation model is.
0: And how are you helping find these uh, acquirers? Are you working very closely with these uh, companies or are you leveraging other venture capital funds as lead investors to do a lot of that?
2: We get deals from oh, many, many different sources. Um, our lead partner, a person called um, Stephen Ibaraki, is very well known in, in, the, um, in, in the startup area. He is an, uh, is an MVP of uh, Microsoft and has been for a number of years, sort of globally recognized as, a, as an AI expert. And so through him we get uh you know a lot of deal flow. 2 years ago we looked at over 2200 deals. 2200, which is a lot. Well, obviously most of them we just um you know we just dis- uh, discarded, but um you know there were a few that were very very good. Given where we're situated, I, I think we're seeing some of the um some, some very, very good stuff out there. In many respects, um, much earlier than uh, even the, uh, the very well-known venture capital firms in the valley.
0: Yeah, no, I know, Stephen, we've been on his podcast, very, very well-connected individual. You know, which companies in the portfolio would you say are the closest to becoming a unicorn in the near future?
2: Analog Computation Enterprises, ACE, is, is, is the closest. It is the one that also has the most potential.
0: Gotcha. And how have the returns sort of shaped out over the seven years you've been investing capital? We haven't had an exit
2: yet because we didn't start investing until about four years ago. I think that once they start coming, uh, I think uh, our LPs will be very happy. Gotcha.
0: And so, you know, given that you obviously have a, a background in real estate, um, you know, how do you... Use- you contribute to the broader ecosystem of innovation and entrepreneurship, and how are you also staying up to date on all the emerging trends and how the landscape is changing for your own you know, team at Reds?
2: Let me say this. Okay, I'm 70 years old, 7-0. Okay, so I'm, I'm an old guy. I read something a number of years ago, and what I read really um, stuck. Apparently, uh, if you have an IQ of 130 and above, you can learn anything you want to learn. If you put your mind to it, I know what my IQ is and I can learn anything I want to learn if I if I if I really want to. I think it's more a question of attitude to keep up to speed with everything else or everything that's going on around the world. I, I read a lot. I spend a lot of time on my computers. Um, I, you know, I, I search out everything that's new, everything that I can uh, that's new in, in, in certain areas of technology. And that's how I keep up to speed. You know, I think that uh, anybody can learn. It's not rocket science. Well, maybe it is, in, in, you know, in some ways. But uh, but uh, no, it, it's, I think it's an attitudinal thing. And it's just a question of rolling up your sleeves and doing it.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, 70 uh, is still young. And being able to stay motivated is the most important thing, exactly. Absorbing it all and uh, deploying it is, is definitely possible. You know, what would you say beyond financial returns, though, is your greatest hope for the impact of your investments one of my greatest
2: hopes is that is that one of our companies actually comes uh, through with uh, an innovation that will change the world in a meaningful way i think that um, ace analog computation enterprises is that company because uh, what it has demonstrated is uh, a new type of artificial intelligence which has the potential to solve one of the uh, most vexing problems today in computer science. And and that problem is the NP-complete problem. For those in the audience who know a little bit about uh, computer science and mathematics, there's a very famous problem called the traveling salesman problem. And it's an optimization problem. Basically, uh, what it is, is you have a, uh, a salesman, who has a number of different uh, destinations that he has to go to. And so the, the, the problem are this, uh, is to find the most efficient way to travel to all those cities. If a, if a traveling salesman has, let's say, three cities to go to, it's not a problem because you can figure it out. A, a, a human can figure it out. Maybe up to 10. But that number goes up to, let's say, 100 even the most uh, advanced um, supercomputers today would take a long, long time to figure out the, uh, figure out the answer. It, it, and what they call exponential time. In other words, um, as the number of cities goes up, the time that it takes to uh, come up with that solution goes up exponentially. So what uh, ACE has done is that it's um, found a way to solve that problem in polynomial time, which is a, which means a, an acceptable amount of time, a regular time. These NP-complete problems are they're very, very common. I, in weather prediction, for example, I mean, ever wonder why weather prediction is so inexact? The reason is there's too many variables. Another example of an optimization problem is uh, FedEx. You know, FedEx um, has... You know, hundreds of thousands of routes every day, de- delivering millions of packages. And so they have a center that's been set up to optimize all their, their, their plane routes, their, uh, their, their truck routes, um, courier routes, etc. Okay? But, you know, the solutions that they come up with are probably not optimal. So what Ace has done is that it's developed a new type of, of AI, which actually optimizes that whole process. Ace is running a test case right right now in the oil and gas area. It's already proven that their technology works and works very, very well. Um, We tested it against the existing uh, best practices, uh, technology, uh, optimization technologies that's out there in the oil and gas area. And it beat it by almost 17 percent. So it's, you know, it's that that company. Is, is the company that we uh, believe uh, uh, will have the most potential to change the world.
0: No, sounds very interesting. You know, Ron, you've obviously amassed a lot of wealth over the years, mostly through real estate. You know, how much of your net worth are you deploying or hoping to deploy into this area of investment? You know, at the beginning, um, I approached
2: it very cautiously. You know, I, I said to my family, you know, this is not a type of investment that you would do if you, you know, mortgage your house and do it. No, no, it's it's, it's, it's nothing like that. Okay. You might deploy two to 3% of your net worth to invest in something like this. Okay. But I think that, you know, as we uh, get better at what we do and and, and, and as we achieve our, our exits, which I think we will, my plan is to uh, increase my percentage, increase the percentage of, of my net worth into technology investments, because I think that um, potential returns there are significantly more I could ever achieve in the real estate area. And here, let me give you an example. And I've said this to uh, uh, my friends and and my family many times. In downtown Vancouver, there's something like 27 million square feet of office space worth, my guess, maybe $30 billion Canadian. Well, chat GPT Uh, in their latest round of funding, and and this is a company that's six years old, Okay, their valuation was slightly over $30 billion U.S. So you have a situation where you have the entire downtown Vancouver, uh, all the office space in downtown Vancouver, which took hundreds of years to develop, the involvement of millions of people, and then you have ChatGPT, six year old company now worth forty percent more than all the space in downtown Vancouver. So that's the power. I mean, that's the potential of technology. It just boggles the mind. The numbers the numbers look ridiculous, but they're true.
0: Yeah, I think people probably would say, you know, real estate is wealth preservation and long term capital appreciation, where open AI is sort of go big or go home type of world changing technology that could potentially be, you know, throttled by so many other things like regulation, by changing in government habits or consumer habits. So, you know, we we could say the same about all the high-flying IPO companies that were, you know, down 95% last year, but we're worth that as companies. So, you know, maybe some people take the other side of that. I guess speaking of family though, Ron, you know, you must have family that still operates in the family business of real estate. How have you uh, explained to them about your a legacy and your interest in t- these types of non real estate investments? And how have you allowed them to sort of straddle both sides of the equation?
2: I have four sons. And my oldest son, uh, who's a lawyer, securities lawyer, doesn't practice anymore. Okay? Um, he's our fund manager. So he's very heavily involved on the technology side. My third son runs the real estate side. What I try and do is I try and keep everybody up to speed uh, about what's going on. And I, I think that they all understand that diversification is important. My real estate center, for example, he sees what's happening. He sees that we cannot compete with the institutions. So we've gotta find a way to leverage our time and our expertise and 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 try and do other things. There's really been no disagreement, Uh, you know, as long as everybody understands what's going on.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the real estate families that are LPs in our fund think about it the same way. You know, generation two and three, the sons and daughters are all seeing opportunities that are, you know, coming to them from their friends and technology and startups. And the families need to figure out a plan and a process to how to vet and filter for that because it is outside of the core real estate business that they've built. And that's why they've looked at us as a partner for them to be able to filter and analyze and co-invest alongside while still getting exposure to that market without putting too much time and effort into it, even though the next generations are interested in it.
2: This is an interesting point you just raised. What I have done is a little bit different than, let's say, your, uh, your, your, your typical uh, LP, uh, real estate uh, uh, family office. Okay. Most of the family offices that I know in real estate... Have given their money to a a third party manager like yourself, for example, okay, what I did was I went one step further, I decided that I would jump in there myself i mean if is that a good was is that going to be a good decision or not i don 't know okay, but I think it's looking pretty good for I, us i right think it's now. a time it's thing. it's a time thing yeah
0: if you have the time and your your family operations can be run. By maybe your your sons, then that makes perfect sense. I, I completely agree with that. But if you're still in the thick of it building the family real estate business and this is only going to be a couple percent, it may not make sense, but to each his own, you know,
2: exactly. I
0: gotta ask Ron, looking back at your journey, you've obviously had a lot of success, you've had a lot of probably ups and some downs, maybe, you know, what message would you give to your your sons or other future investors, the next generation of investors or entrepreneurs who are looking to go down a similar path?
2: Plan, like my dad told me, just plan. Have a plan, okay, and stick to the plan.
0: What was your plan? Because I don't think your plan was that your father would pass away a week no. later. So, <laughs> no,
2: no, yeah. no, no, no. At that point in time, I really didn't have a plan. My plan, uh, as I grew up and still is true today, is to keep the real estate going as a cash flow machine. Um, keep it growing on a steady basis. I mean, that's what's going to pay the bills. That's what's going to put food on the table. It's not going to be super exciting, but what it'll allow us as a family to do is to invest in these other things, these outlier things, like these technology things, which have the potential to create significant wealth. I mean, maybe more wealth in the real estate. Who knows?
0: Yeah, I agree. It's great. That's a great plan. And I think a lot of family offices have awoken to this sort of diversification, but also Outgrowing their, you know, kind of traditional operating business mentality and trying to kind of learn while also making investments outside of their areas of focus on a day-to-day basis, which is what you've obviously done and continue to do.
2: Sort of generally speaking, if I was a manufacturer of, of of products, for example, if I owned a manufacturer, if I was not involved in the real estate area, I would look at the technology area and I would and I would think that. Unless I um, sort of adopted the newest technologies and, and try and kept up with my competition, you know, sooner or later, I, I wouldn't be able to compete. You know, my feeling is that um, the technology train is here. It's leaving the station. Unless you, unless you jump on the station, you're going to miss out. So that's what, that's what I did. I mean, I, not only did I decide to jump on the, the train, I didn't want to be in the caboose. I wanted to be uh, in the first car to be part of the group that would uh, have a part in in creating new technologies and in, in changing the way things are done around the world.
0: Yeah, I love it. You know, 70 years young and still looking at building and investing in the next version of AI and innovation. Fantastic. You know, before we wrap things up, Ron, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast?
2: Fast money is something that I look at, that I listen to quite a bit, because it, it, you know, it's fast, it's interesting, it's, it's, you know, it's new, it's, it's, it's. Uh, anyway, it, it, I find it very interesting.
0: No, for sure. Uh, next is your favorite newsletter or blog? Yeah, actually, I don't have one. I don't have one. All right. Well, I can a...
2: tell you what my favorite book is. It's, it, it's, it's a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. Okay which talks about um, the evolution of, I guess, business life um, over the last 200 years. It starts with the first industrial revolution, you know, with the um, invention of the steam engine. And it goes into the second one, which um, uh, was the invention of of electricity. And then the third industrial revolution, which occurred in, say, the 1970s, with the introduction of semiconductors and the Internet, and then now we're in the fourth industrial revolution with the advent of AI and machine learning. That book I found very interesting because uh, the, the message is that every industrial revolution has spawned new business models. Uh-huh. You know, There's a lot of that happening right now. And unless you keep up, you're going to be left behind.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Next is your favorite tech gadget?
2: Uh, probably my iPhone.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I,
2: I, just, I sleep with it pretty good well, you know i mean yeah
0: i'm sure and your favorite new trend probably artificial intelligence in, uh, i had a feeling know,
2: uh, over the next yeah over the next uh, uh, yeah. 20 years
0: uh, i guess and last but not least i think i know the answer to this one but just say it again for our audience your favorite life lesson
2: plan <laughs> always just have a plan. plan have have a plan always have a plan stick to it you can always make changes but if it's well thought out, don't
0: deviate too much. Okay, always come back to it. <laughs> Sounds good. Wise words. Hey, everyone. From Thanks Sean, for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talk. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague could benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.